en een hartelijke goeiemorgen. Welkom bij ons program Skrifteerlik, waar ons wekelijk saam na oplossing soek uit die skrifte, vervra waarmee gewone mense sikkel. Die Bijbel sê in Johannes 17, 17, die woord is waarheid, heilig hulle na die woord. En Psalm 119, sê, die woord is een lamp vir my voete en een licht vir my pad. Kom dan saam met ons vir die volgende uur, wanneer ons geen steen onaangeraag laat, om die waarheid te vind en licht te skyn op die vraag uit die skrifte, waarmee ek en jy moendik kan worstel nie. Kry dus gauw jou Bijbel en kom onderzoek saam met ons die skrifte. Dis moes nou skrifteerlik. Our family is just getting bigger and bigger. Welcome to 657 AM. Yeah, bigger, bigger, bigger family growing by the day. And by God's grace, good morning to you. Hartelike goeiemorgen, baie welkom by nog een uitgave van skrifteerlik, waar ons del van die woord van die Heere. Thy word is truth. Easy to remember, John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them by your truth, thy word is truth. That's what we do in this program, tackling God's word, God's truth, uh, the highest authority known to mankind, the Bible. And, uh, well, if you've got a question, a lifestyle question, any question with regards to the Bible, this is the program where you ask those questions. Nullach this is the WhatsApp number here in the atelier in the enigste manier hoe jy kan deelneem aan die program dier jou WhatsApps vir ons te stuur. 082-657-2729 Now use your phone, now use your sender voice notes, WhatsApps only, ka finish, and uh, you send it through to 082-657-2729 My host and guest this morning in studio as always, uh, what a privilege on a uh, Tuesday morning to say a warm-hearted good morning to my brother in Christ, uh, Pastor Rocky Stevens, uh, Benoni Bible Church. Rocky, how are you keeping? Very well, thank you, Vaynant. It's so good to be here and to be with you. And we praise the Lord for also the listeners that are tuned in and ready to get delving into the scriptures. Yeah, we've prayed for our listeners as we do, uh, because ultimately, as if you just listen to this uh, program this morning, uh, please pray for Rocky and myself that uh, God would supernaturally uh, give us the scriptures, remind us of the word of God. Ultimately, we're not here to share man's opinion, and we can so easily manipulate God's word for our own intents and purposes. We trust that what we share with you comes from the Holy Spirit. Through God's Word, pray for us that we stay true to that calling. So if you just listen to the program this morning, bid for ons dat ons getrou bly aan die leiding dan van die Heilige Geest. 082-657-2729 Rocky, kicking off with the first question that we got, uh, starting with Mark 1 and verse 12. Jesus sent by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Well, that's what the word teaches us. The question is, was Jesus tempted in the flesh or in the spirit and the flesh? And what does that mean? Yeah, so there we we do see the temptation of our Lord. And according to the biblical account in Mark 1, 12 to 13, Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. The text doesn't explicitly mention whether Jesus was tempted in his flesh and the spirit. But I think I have an inclination of where a question like this might be coming from. And so I'm going to be taking a few assumptions as to why the the question has been asked of, was Jesus tempted in the flesh and the spirit? 
see, based even on the narrative, and even if we look at the the parallel passages in the other gospel accounts, it is inferred that Jesus experienced temptation on multiple levels, both in his physical body, but also in his spirit. It is the whole Jesus that was tempted. It was not just one section of Jesus. In every way um, possible. In every way possible, yet without sin. And I think the difficulty sometimes comes where we start to try and separate the 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 Jesus deity and the Jesus flesh he he took on humanity and he added to his deity a hundred percent man and so he and that's what we call the hypostatic union it's difficult for us to kind of comprehend but even for us as individuals there's no real difference between our material part of man and the immaterial part of man until there's death that's when we are separated our immaterial part that soul spirit part of man is separated from the flesh part and to be absent from the body is to be present with the lord so for us we we must say that even when we have spiritual disciplines it affects us our physical disciplines when we have physical disciplines it affects our spiritual disciplines but answering this question jesus being fully human and fully divine faced these various forms of temptation throughout his life and in the wilderness, we get a glimpse, at least we are told that he was tempted day and night for 40 days, 40 nights. But there's really three that are highlighted for us. And that's in Luke chapter 4 is the parallel passage where you can see a bit more detail regarding this. And what that really does for us is it highlights those three major ways that man is always tempted. He's tempted with the, with the flesh, with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And that is not just physical as far as the flesh, but it is a spiritual attack from Satan as well upon the Lord Jesus. And so at the same time, Jesus responds to Satan's temptations, reveal that he's, his spiritual strength, his obedience to God. And each time that Jesus counters Satan's temptations, how does he do it? It's the way that we would encourage our listeners. That's why this program is called Skriftilik, Scriptural. He always goes to the scriptures, and that's how he answers Satan. So if we ask ourselves the question, how should we be combating temptation, whether it is spiritual or fleshly temptation, it's always go back to the scriptures. That is the sword of the spirit, and that is the way that we are helped by God. And this demonstrates just his, his reliance even on the spirit. It's the spirit of God who leads him into the wilderness, but it's also the spirit of God that he depends on, and it's God... And and God even sends angels at the end of the 40 days to strengthen our Lord um, in the wilderness wanderings. So a couple of passages that just detail some of this a little bit more. We would see also Matthew 4, verse 1 to 11, where we see this parallel also of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And it describes there how Satan tempted Jesus three times, targeting his physical needs, his desires for power, and then his trust in God's protection. And so we have to say that this was the whole Jesus, not just his flesh that was being uh, gone after. And then another reference passage would be Hebrews 4, verse 15, where it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So there we see an all-encompassing, in every way that you and I can be tempted, Jesus was tempted. It was not just purely fleshly but his whole person first peter 2 verse 22 says he committed no sin neither was deceit found in his mouth and that just highlights jesus sinlessness in all of this 
So I think we could get into a little bit more detail, but I'm happy to leave it, I think, there. There is a Gnosticism that was a first century kind of a big attack on the church. And there is there does seem to be in our day something of a Gnostic comeback, or what's been called Neo-Gnosticism. And Neo-Gnosticism tries to make this very distinct difference between the flesh of Jesus and the spirit of Jesus. But the old Gnosticism tended to say that Jesus actually didn't really come in the flesh. And that's why First John was written by uh, the Apostle John to, to really combat that. But it does seem that Neo-Gnosticism seems to make this distinction between the flesh of Jesus and the spirit of Jesus and then tries to make it, it almost downplays yeah, some yeah. of the temptation that Jesus went through and says, but it really wasn't that bad because yeah. he was fully God. What we've got to realize is we need to stick to what the scripture teaches in, in this regard. Rocky, can I ask you, just before we uh, walk away from this question altogether, is it possible then for believers following the example of Jesus to live righteously? Yes, we are tempted, but is it possible to live a righteous life? Uh, is the examples in scriptures of of believers that actually lived righteous lives before the Lord? Is it possible? Yes, I, I think that it is. Um, it is possible. We do have an inclination towards sin because of our flesh, but we and and as far as your ex, uh, the example of believers that lived righteously, we have a man like Moses spoken of as living righteously, although he still did sin. Um, Job as well. Lord. Huh? We've got Job who was the most righteous man in his day. Right. And yet at the end of Job, he also does repent. We've got men like Joseph, who's another example of a man that lived righteously and fled temptation. A man like Daniel in his day wow. who fled temptation. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego along with Daniel. We're not too sure what happens with those three men in the rest of the book of Daniel, but it would seem that they remained steadfast before the Lord and continued to serve in some type of capacity in Babylon. Um, and Daniel in particular, I mean, you, you actually, that's one of the few men in the Bible that you actually can't peg a specific sin onto. Yeah. It would seem yeah. that he lived the, his whole life very devoted to the Lord, even till in his 70s and was was looking for the return of the Lord. You got men like Simeon in in um you know Luke chapter 2 who was an old man that held yeah. Jesus in his hands and would seem to be a, a righteous man along with Anna who was that prophetess who seemed to be a righteous woman in her day. And you got other examples in the New Testament of men like Barnabas um who was Joseph before and his name was given to him by the church as Barnabas son of encouragement who seemed to be an older man that just lived his life fully to to the devotion of, of the Lord. And even somebody like the Apostle Paul, right. who, who, whose life radically was changed. And then 1 John is a, is a book that you can see laid out for you the fact that it's, it's more than possible for you to live righteously when you are filled with the Spirit Modern of day God. Christianity, 2023. Yes. 2023. We can live righteously before the Lord as we walk in step with the Spirit. And that's what Galatians 5 even tells us now. Be live according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. Put yeah. to death the deeds of the flesh. Live in the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. And then you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so I do think yeah. that we make too much of an in excuse in our day of going, well, we're, we're all imperfect. And then it kind of gives us that feeling that we're okay to stay yeah. in sin, which it is not. Not if you are in Christ. And that's what first john even lays out for us but the the joy and the hope of first john 1 verse 9 is that if we sin 
He is faithful and just. We confess our sins to him, and he will forgive us of our sins. If we say that we have no sin, that's also another problem to actually fall into then that. We make him trap to be a liar. We make him out to be a liar. Yeah. No, all of us, and and you know, we if we are nitpicky, even every day, we are all sinning in different ways. But we are to be sensitive to the work of the Spirit of God within us to move us toward righteous living. And God expects that. He says, "Be holy." As I am holy, First Peter tells us that uh, once more. And, and his, his desire for us is for us to live holy lives. And we are enabled by the Spirit of God. And, and, being, and that's why Paul often emphasizes being in Christ. It is no longer I that live, but it is Christ who lives in me. So you and I can never actually do anything good in and of ourselves. We must be empowered by the Spirit of God. Right. Thank you for that uh, wonderful, wonderful uh, question that you've uh, posed, Mark 1-2. And yes, it is possible. As our Lord had said, an example even to this day, Tuesday, 6th of June, 2023, uh, the challenge is out there. Uh, saw a bumper sticker the other day that said Christianity is not for sissies. Uh, you can live a righteous life. And uh, to stand before the Lord. Heike, Heike, you bad. Thank you so much. Says, morning, Rocky. Morning, Valen. Thank you for a wonderful program. Romans 8, 28. Love that scripture. It says, and we know that all things work for the good, for those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. And we also know many have been called, but few have been chosen. And then here's Heike's question. How do we know, how do I know that I have been chosen or called according to God's purposes? What do we answer, the brother? Mm. What do we answer? I think it's not the, the, only, the only person. There are a lot of people going, no, yes, 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 yes. What, what does God's word say in that regard? Yeah, so um, we must have faith in Jesus Christ. And what, what, I, what I, I see a lot of confusion in regard to the idea of election and calling and being part of God's elect. And what we see in the New Testament is you always are seen as elect and called when you have believing faith. It's always that way around. It's not that you get believing faith because you are called elect and chosen. You are the called chosen elect when you have believing faith. And so faith in Jesus Christ is the very starting point. And Ephesians 2 verse 8 to 9 tells us that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So that's the starting point of if you are going to be somebody that is called according to his purpose, as Romans 8.28 says. So you must believe in Jesus as the Savior. So there's an important element, I think, when it comes to saving faith. You must First, recognize that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. Then you must realize that God has given a Savior and that that Savior is Jesus Christ alone, that no man comes to the Father but through him alone. And then he must be your Savior because it's not just enough going, okay, we, I believe in Jesus because that's what James even says. The demons believe that. The demons yeah. even know that Jesus is the Son of God. The demons know that Jesus went to the cross and that he lived the sinless life and died the sinless death and that he rose from the dead. Demons even know that, but they don't have believing faith. I, I, I want to I ask you this there, Rocky, stop. And, and, and when we look at each other, brother, in the eye and say, uh, when it's up here, you, you know the old Cremora ad, it's not inside, it's on it's top. On top yeah. You know, uh, when it's on top, 
It's religion. How mm. do I get it into my heart? How yes. does religion become relationship, a, a, a belief that flows through like honey into the heart that I can truly know that I know called according to its purposes? Yes, yes. And, and, and in a sense, that believing faith is that last critical step because the difference between heaven and hell is often like you've mentioned. The difference between the head and the heart. Wow. And you can know that a chair is a chair and that a chair can hold you up if you sit in it. It's a whole other thing when you go and you actually take that step of sitting in that chair. And then you get to experience the fact that that chair keeps you from hitting the ground. And that's part of that believing faith. You know these truths, but these truths must be real to the heart of the individual. And that's something that the, the Spirit of God really does in an individual. It's something that you can yearn for and ask God to please work in you for. Oftentimes our pride keeps us away from taking that final step. You might even know you're a sinner. You know that Jesus is the Savior. But that last step of Jesus must be my Savior. I must rest in yeah. him. I must know him as my Lord is that final and last step that is so critical for believing faith to take place. But I, I remember in my young days, and, and, and this is taking me back to those school camps and church camps that you attended, and the atmosphere is just absolutely supercharged in the presence of God, and you give your life to Him and it lasts about three days. Yes. What is the difference? I know we're back to the parable of the sower here, but... Uh, what is the difference? How will I know that yeah. I know that I yeah. know the decisions and that I've made? I think that the Lord sometimes can use those type of experiences like the camps, etc. But I think there is a great danger that you've highlighted there. And that's often that emotional high and even sometimes what you would call almost almost a hypnotism yeah. um, that takes place when there is that crowd and that element. And that's oftentimes everything has been set up for that. The music has been made that way. The preaching has been tailor-made that way. And everything is moved towards that kind of a hype and getting you to make that emotional decision. All right. And and that's not what we're talking about when we're talking about believing faith. There is that, that move of God in the heart of an individual where they see their need of a Savior and they turn into him wholeheartedly. They no longer trust in themselves they're trusting in what God has said in his word. They confess their sin. They confess what God has said about himself. They believe what Jesus has said of himself. And they lay everything else aside. And in that sense, they they come to him absolutely surrendered and absolutely uh, desperate for God to do a work. So that's, I think, the first element would be that faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, as Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 9 teaches, but then also the work of the Holy Spirit. And I think that's what we're building on, even with, with where, where you've been taking us in yeah. some of the conversation, is that the Holy Spirit plays an absolutely vital role in the lives of believers. And Romans 8, verse 16 states that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And so before you can get to a Romans 8, 28, you must have a Romans 8, 16 that happens where the Spirit of God now abides in you. You must be born again. You must have the Spirit of God move in and actually bear witness to your spirit that you are now a child of God. And there's that element of Abba Father that you now cry out. You just know that you know that you know. You can't even necessarily articulate this in the best way mentally, you know, or even uh, say this to somebody. It might even sound like you're a rambling lunatic. But you just know that you know because the Spirit of God now is in you and dwells in you and you now know that you're a child of God. And so the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit and his guidance can provide that assurance that we have been chosen by God. Now, what I would say as well is when it comes to the assurance of salvation that we see in Romans 8.28, 
Not all believers always experience that. You may be a believer without experiencing that gift of assurance, and there may be a number of reasons for that. Assurance, the gift of assurance of salvation, is something that the believer experiences when they are walking right before the Lord, when they are studying His Word, when they are living righteously before Him. But you may lose that gift of assurance without losing actual salvation. I hope that makes sense. You might not know that, am I really saved? You may have a lot of doubts that creep in because you're actually not living in a way that is honoring to the Lord. And so that's often a symptom of a lack of peace is often because you don't feel the presence of the Lord because you might be actually insulting the Spirit of God by not living in accordance with Him. And so those are things that that maybe is a separate subject. But you will know that you are the chosen of God when you have the indwelling Spirit of God. So that would be the second kind of thing. So you need to have faith in Jesus Christ and the work of the Spirit, but then also transformation and fruitfulness. So that's one of the ways that we know that we are children of God is when there's fruit on the tree. The fruit isn't the reason that you are saved, but the fruit is there that proves the root. You know, so Matthew 7, verse 16 to 20, we find there the, the scriptures teach us that we can recognize the true follower of Jesus Christ by their fruit. We, as we live our faith, we show and, and we, we give evidence to that spiritual transformation of the, the Holy Spirit working in us. And that's where Galatians 5, 22 to 23 comes in. Because when you have the indwelling Spirit of God, you begin to bear fruit. And that's another way that you know that Romans 8.28 is applying to you because there's fruit of the Spirit that is in you. And when you look at that fruit, you can't attribute it to your own self. You have to attribute it to, this is God working in me. I would never do this if it were not for God working in me. And that helps to give that assurance. And just a few more thoughts. You also have the confirmation from God's Word. And that's... You know, as you study in God's word, God's word gives you further confirmation that you are called of God, that you are his child. So you're not just having that fruit, but you're also having something a lot more tangible, which is the inspired word of God. And the Bible serves as our guide and it contains God's promises and his instructions. And as we study, as we meditate on his word, we find these reassurance and the confirmation that we are called according to his purposes. We begin to obey God. Instead of obey the flesh, obey Satan, obey the world. And then lastly, as we walk in obedience, and I think that leads us from that God's word, John 14 verse 23 emphasizes the importance of obeying Jesus. He says, if you love me, you'll obey me. And First John 2, 3 to 6, it speaks of knowing that we are we are in Christ by keeping his commandments. Yeah. So that's also, again, where it comes back to what I was saying about the assurance. Our assurance will increase as our obedience increases, and so, we will know that we are children of God. So Second Corinthians thirteen five says, search yourself. Yes. Search yourself to see if Christ is in you. But how would I be able to search myself, apply these things that you've just spoken of, if I have a veil over my heart, if I'm blinded by, by, by the God of this world, if... Uh, I've yet to meet the man on his way to hell. Uh, Everybody is going to heaven. Uh, yes. Not everybody wants God to be there when they pitch up. Yeah. How do I search myself then? Yeah, I think I think you would have to, even from what we see in Corinthians, is having an orderly life, and that's the major thing that Paul actually addresses the church at Corinth regarding. And so as you now ask yourself, well, am I actually taking part in the means of grace, in the ordinary means of grace that God has given us? Am I going, am I assembling myself with the body of believers? 
Am I taking part in the Lord's Supper? Am I celebrating those that are being baptized? Am I hearing the word of God being preached? Am I enjoying the fact that I'm hearing the word of God being preached? Am I praying the word of God in my prayers? Am I singing the word of God in my worship in song? As you go through these Christian, um, let's say these Christian ordinary means of grace, am I enjoying fellowship? Am I practicing hospitality? Am I, you know, as these things, am I serving actively within a body of Christ? When you do that, you now are searching yourself. And if there's a veil over your heart, you're probably going to say no to a number of those questions. But if you really will search, and if you're willing to become uncomfortable, because he has the other problem, and that's what John 3.19 often, I mean, we love John 3.16, I love John 3.16, but many people miss John 3.19, which says, and this is the judgment, the light is coming to the world, but people have loved darkness. So if you ask yourself, well, am I actually loving darkness, and thereby I'm not really taking part in these means of grace? If you're somebody that is ignoring the ordinary Christian means of grace, most likely what you've said now about a veil over the heart is there for you. Then when you realize that there's a veil over your heart, that's when you can actually turn to Christ and beg him, please remove the veil from my heart. And that's the starting point of salvation. That's that step one of the process of recognizing that I'm a sinner. Oh, my word, I have been deceived. And that's what uh, Proverbs teaches twice. It says there's a way that seems right in a man's eyes, but its end is destruction. Many people are on the broad road that leads to destruction. Few are on that thin, let's say, narrow narrow road that that leads to life. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And some people think that Jesus just said that I am one of the ways or one of the truths or one of the life. You must be in Christ and the Christ of the Scriptures. And I think that that's a a helpful um, thought pattern to go through. Is there actually a veil over my heart? Ask yourself that question. And then ask yourself, am I taking part in the ordinary means of grace as a Christian? I think sadly, and I've come across this as a pastor too often, People think that somehow they're in a league all on their own, separate from other other human beings, that they don't need to do what the Bible says in regard to assembly of the saints as far as it comes to personal devotion to holiness yeah. in service of their brothers and sisters I around I serve them. God yeah. my way. Yes, and I think I that that it. is a we, huge, we sang that huge song? problem. Frank Sinatra, Frank Sinatra, I did it yeah. my way. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Wow, absolutely amazing. Bless your heart, Rocky. Thank you so much for that one. Akio, bless your heart. Excellent question. Romans 8, 28. Ek haas as ons moet ook in my sikspeel. Skriftierlik is waar jy ingeskakel is. Tot in met uh, 12 uur vanmiddag. Dit laat ons met, uh, wat is het, omtrent 20 minuten oor in hierdie program. 082-657-2729. 082-657-2729. As jy een vraag het, wat jy graag wil vraag, stuur het vir ons dier, en indien moendlik uh, sit ook vir ons die skrifgedeelte by. Guillaume en René says, this is a freedom song. In Christ Jesus, we have that freedom. 082-657-2729. Het jy dier dringende vraag, stuur het vir ons dier. Ons pak saam met jou die skrifte aan en kyk wat antwoord die woord van die Heere ons. Yeah, what an incredible song. Guillaume and René, a freedom song. Your love is our freedom song. Follow in the footsteps of love and live right, life righteously. Radio buzzing of life, 657 AM.
can be done to live life righteously. As jy vraag het wat jy wil instuur, heikie jou baar wat so pas sê, thank you Rocky, thank you Vanan, God bless. Same to you brother, thank you for listening to this program. Baie dankie dat jy ook ingeskakel is en luister na skriftierlik. Dis wat ons doen op a dinsdag, as jy vraag het waar my sikkel iemand ergens het iets gesê, that it absolutely boggles the mind. Is that even in scripture? What does the word of God say with regards to that? Maybe it's a lifestyle question, maybe it's a question with regards to raising kids, uh, with marriage, whatever the case might be. I believe that God's word has got an answer for every conceivable uh, question that we might have in life. And you must just be willing to dig and wait on the Lord and wach op die Heere dan vir die vraag. As jy vraag het, stuur het vir ons in 02-657-2729, 02-657-2729 en sit vir ons die skrifgedeelte ook by waarover jy dan vraag het. A question with regards to the New Testament, disseminating New Testament scripture, what is the process like? How should we do it? Uh, spreading it wide field. Uh, how do we treat that question, uh, Rocky? I'm, I'm hoping that I'm um, interpreting the question right. I think that this is asking regarding the way that the New Testament was became part of the canon. So those 27 books of the New Testament, starting with Matthew, ending with Revelation, it was quite a process, and there is a, a whole field called textual criticism as well that looks at some of the manuscripts and go back to the autographer and the way that the the Bible was copied and written, but also what is called the test of canonicity. And so you can go and look that up. uh, There's quite a a lot that is available on that. But part of the way that they would disseminate and even put together the 27 books of the the New Testament, um, so I'll answer it, I guess, in two different ways. But one, just looking at how did they put together those 27 books, First, they would look at the apostolic origin of the of the scriptures, and that means that they would have the, the early Christians would recognize, and that's in the first century, the authority of the writing of those that were directly connected to the apostles or apostles themselves and eyewitnesses of Jesus on the earth. And so the apostles were considered as eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus' ministry and his and his teaching. And so then their writings held specific significance. For example, the Gospel of Matthew and John were attributed to apostles. Levi, the one apostle, and Matthew used to be the tax collector, and John, the apostle John, while Mark and Luke were associated with close associates to the apostles. Mark wrote his gospel underneath the apostleship of Peter, as well as Luke writing his his uh, gospel underneath the apostleship of Paul. And so you have those eyewitnesses and those that were writing underneath the apostles. And then you would move on to um, the early usage as well as the reception that that book received. And so early Christian communities, they valued the, the circulation and the certain writings that were considered as authoritative for their faith and practice. And so these writings were read and used in worship, in teaching and instruction, and they would do similar to what we have in our church services where they would they would exposit the Word of God. And so they would have that passage, they would be using it, and so they would ask the question, well, how early was this 
book used, the book of James or the book of Hebrews or the book of Romans, at its early usage and its reception. How did it? How was it received amongst early Christians? And the acceptance as well as the usage of certain texts by multiple communities and multiple local churches across different regions then played this crucial role in their recognition as well as their inclusion in the New Testament. And then you'd move to the orthodox teaching as well as consistency. And then early Christian leaders and their communities sought to ensure that the writings being considered for inclusion aligned with the orthodox teaching that was passed down from the apostles. And so they would often test it. And that's like the Bereans would do with when the apostle Paul was speaking. They would go and search the scriptures and make sure does this passage actually fit with what we've got, what we've received. Is it true to the apostolic teaching. You have something like Second Thessalonians actually warning in Second Thessalonians 2 that there were other um, books that were written, there were other people that were speaking, but hey, hold on a minute. You need to make sure that this is in alignment with what we are teaching as the apostles. And the church was founded upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles. So doctrine, consistency, as well as conformity to the apostolic traditions were important factors when it came to evaluating the legitimacy of that text of Scripture. Writing that deviated from orthodox teaching or contained heretical ideas was generally rejected. And you have a lot of books that were written in around 200 A.D., that weren't written before 96 AD, which the last book of the New Testament written by the Apostle John, Revelation, was around 96 AD. So anything written after that would generally be just absolutely flat out rejected. As And most of those times the Gnostics were writing a tremendous amount of writings, which even in First John, John actually combats and, and stands against. Then you have the canonical lists as well as the councils. And so there is significance to the canonical lists and the councils. In the second and the third centuries um, of the early church, various lists of canonical books, when we say canonical books, those books that are part of the Bible is what I mean. They began to emerge from different Christian communities. And these lists contained guidance as well as recognition for the text considered as considered as authoritative. And so councils, such as the Council of Carthage in 397 AD, they further affirmed then the acceptance of certain books and solidified the canon as the New Testament as we have it today. And so they would have these lists, these 27 books. And then lastly, the widespread consensus. So after time, A broad consensus emerged among the majority of Christian communities regarding the canonical status of books included in the New Testament. And this consensus was was not achieved overnight, but it ensured that this would then be the canon. And then this would be copied as well as the New Testament books. As far as what it was written on, either it would be written at first on papyrus or on parchments, now, papyrus is similar to what we have today is called paper, oh, right. <laughs> but papyrus was made from the pith of the papyrus plant, which then parchments were derived from animal skins. And so parchments were actually more expensive than papyrus, and they had much greater longevity. It's kind of like your leathers. So that would usually be sheep or goat skin that would be used in, as as um, as parchments. And par- parchments were durable, a bit more expensive than papyrus. But they became increasingly popular during the Roman Empire and during the Roman period. Even somebody like the Apostle Paul at the end of Second Timothy asks, please 
please bring the the parchments speaking about this kind of animal skin version of written medium and that you'd obviously be able to roll up put into your baggage look after and it would be and so that would then be copied by scribes and there would be this very um, intense process when it came to the copying of a new testament book you'd have them preparing the writing service uh, surface scribes would do this they would lay out the text they'd then write the text they'd be very very careful when it came to the proofreading and the correction if they had made any errors in it and then they would distribute and they would send this out and then often those that would receive this would make copies themselves of it and that's why for christianity there's no other religion in all of the world that has as many manuscripts as what we have and when you do something like that science of textual criticism it's just amazing to see the accuracy with which we have received our bibles and obviously there's the translation as well and so it's been translated into various languages like english which has the broadest amount of translations of those manuscripts and and that uh, combined work and so the lord in his mercy has been ensuring that the word of god is disseminated throughout the ages i know there's religions that says uh, you know we've we've been uh, reading our religious documents in the same language for the last two thousand years whereas god's word i mean came to us aramaic greek hebrew and uh, today we even have it afrikaans english we have it in every conceivable language across the the face of this planet and we're thankful to the lord for that many many a nation and uh, of the ultimate goal is to get the word of god to every nation and every household on the face of this planet if you've got a question 15 minutes no 10 minutes uh, to go we uh, got uh, god's word we're working from the word we call it scriptural skriftelik in ons onderzoek saam met jou die skrif. A uh, listener that forwarded the question, good morning my dear brother in Christ and Pastor Rocky, a quick question, is it biblical for an ordinary ordained pastor and teacher of the word, and here's the punchline, to sell his church, one of the reasons being only 8 of the 300 members tithing financially to the work of Christ, uh, I think the, 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 the question is, is, is quite mm. clear. Rocky, what do we answer this listener? Yeah, I, I would say that that's you know, implied in there saying that this is a man who is actually a teacher of God's word. What I would say is that there's no place for the selling of a local church. I think that you, you know, we must understand what the local church is as well. The church is not a building. The church yeah. is not a property. The church is the people of God that have been saved by a by Christ, you cannot sell a local church. There's no way that you can do that. Now, if a person actually owns the property that the church is on, and it's in their personal name, in their personal capacity, that's a different uh, a different scenario. But I would say that this is this is not healthy at all. This is not. Now, this is. I mean, I I don't know the full situation, but I have heard of pastors doing that as well, and it's and I can't believe it at all that it would be anything biblical. I do not own Benoni Bible Church, where I am the pastor. I am simply a slave of Christ and a servant of that local church. That is not my church. That is so the actual building is yeah. that in a trust. Uh, you know, so, uh, so that, that the, the building of Benoni Bible Church actually is vested in the membership of of the Church of Benoni Bible Church, and there is some clauses for dissolution in our constitution that that talk about actually that property going to a like-minded church if we if we dissolve 
but but you you know when you when you're looking at the legal matters and the constitutional elements, there is a building that was bought. There's yeah. a well, there's yeah, yeah. a there's a property that was bought, and there's a building that is on it. We have a bank account. We've got money in the bank account, um, but that is vested in the membership of Benoni Bible Church for them to decide through the official board, which is the leaders of the church, which is elders and deacons, um, biblically. But that that is not Rocky's church. Yeah. You know? And I think that's yeah. maybe part of the problem, is when people start to think Benoni Bible Church belongs to Rocky, because if they think it belongs to Rocky, then Rocky could sell it. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But that's, it kind of makes me think of Ananias and Sapphira who sold their land, and they come and they lie about it um, to the Holy Spirit. And, and there Peter says, but didn't that land belong to you? Yeah. And didn't the money belong to you when yeah. you sold it? Now, why do you come and lie about yeah, it? Yeah. But the reality is that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. It is his, and he paid for his church with his blood. We cannot sell his church in that sense. Yeah. You know, so I think that that, that However, is... We've seen our face uh, share of, of pastors and ministers and reverends selling the buildings, taking the money and go and do other things. Yeah, that, that uh, is, and it makes that the, front pages, make the front pages of the newspaper. Big time shameful. And, yeah. and I think that that is very much often the mark of a false teacher because you see that actually all the way through the scriptures, every false teacher, there's one thing that they have in common. Do you want to take a guess at it? Money, love of yeah, money, yeah, love of money, and so they will see God's God's church as a form of enterprise that they will just kind of sell. All right. So the uh, SMS just came in. The WhatsApp came in. It says, "Yes, the property was bought by the pastor and his wife out of the personal money." Yeah. So, so then you know, if they selling the property, that's a whole other thing. But I don't think you can sell a congregation, and I would I would say that for that. Um, for any faithful members of a local church like that, where the pastor is kind of, he's just And it's upping, set up according to the Bible, you know, with the deacons and elders and you know, everything. If he's up in and out of there, but he, he actually bought the property himself, and he's now selling the property. And you know, I, th- I think there's a lot of ethical issues that yeah. I would have with an individual like that. He's probably even making a profit on what he what he he had there. But I would say... You know, look at where you are in the town that you are or the city that you are and go find a faithful church to yeah. be a part of. Right. If you want to send me an email at pastor at bononibiblechurch.co.za, I could probably even point you in the right direction if you want to know of a good place to go. But as far as selling a congregation, I, d- I don't see that as biblical at all. all right. If that was his property, it's in his name, it's in his wife's name. Um, and he's deciding to do it. He has liberty to go and do that. I, I, whether I think that's right or wrong is another thing. Yeah. I don't think that's a, a right thing. I don't think it started off right in All the right. first place. Yeah. I think that the autonomy of the local church was not uh, put into practice. And I think sadly what happens sometimes is people approach church planting kind of as though it is some other business, like they're opening a barber a or a franchise. or <laughs> yeah. you know. And, and this is a problem right from the get-go. And so your yeah. foundation is wrong. From the start, and yeah. you don't have, and that's one of the reasons that I'm a, um, that's why I, I'm at Benoni Bible Church as an employee of the church that has been called as the pastor to that church by a yeah. congregation that has said, you know, we confirm the call of God that is on this man's life. So it doesn't life. automatically become your son's yes. congregation now yes. when he grows up. I mean, it's whoever yeah. the board appoints as, yeah. as And whoever. I think that, that our system is very broken in yeah. our country. Yeah. You know, um, oftentimes pastors are not being 
um, paid very well in their congregations. Yeah. They're not being necessarily looked Keep after that well. And, and it almost becomes easier to just become a church planter that like kind of owns it and owns the property and owns how much you're going to get paid as a salary. And this starts to become such a big thing. But I think there's so much danger in that. I think yeah. there's a much better system in place. And, and I would say that autonomy of the local body, the priesthood of every believer, every believer being involved in the actual purchase of that and, and actually that grace giving yeah. even above um, the Old Testament principle of tithe. I know a lot of people will say, but there's a tithe. A tithe in the Old Testament was like 23%. Um, you know, there's grace giving that the New Testament saint has, and you're part of that work of Christ and that planting of a church is not just the purchase of a property and in the name. And I think it would be much better to not have it in the name of that of that pastor or his wife. Um, you know, at, at Benoni Bible Church, for the legal side of things, there is, you know, you do have the NPO registration, and I would be one of the three signatories, and I would be the, an office bearer at Benoni yeah. Bible Church. Yeah. But even that, it still does not belong to me. Um, if I leave tomorrow, if um, if I die tomorrow, um, if uh, there's no way that my children now become the inheritors of yeah. Benoni Bible Church. It's not Bible a franchise. Church, it's not a franchise like that yeah. at all. Yeah. And it's something that should the Lord, Lord call me somewhere else or say to me, hey, Rocky, go and he calls somebody else there, they just pick it up where, where I've left it off, and they, they continue to be a slave of Christ and a servant of the church. Right. Uh, I think we should tackle that uh, some other time, uh, look some more into it, uh, because many the, the, nowadays you see many churches that it's just a natural process where the lead pastor hands it over to his son, huge uh, Evangelical churches, worldwide TV churches, where you see this happening, uh, and yep. uh, just That's so sad, man. Have you heard of the NAR group? They're so NAR, <laughs> the New Apostolic Reformation. All right, those guys are part of uh, a lot of that um, in our day, where there's this, this just almost like they think that there's this new apostolic thing that they yeah. can like pass this mantle on to their son, or and it becomes this big family business and a franchise. Hey, Amen. Yeah, um, this, right. that's not a. That's broken. Look, the Lord in his kindness still saves people, and there's still people that become part of the body of Christ in places like that, and, and that's his prerogative to do that. But yeah. but as far as what we can see biblically in the New Testament, that's not a, a way for church planting or behaving in God's body. We've got a minute left. Uh, one more question before we greet, love, and leave you. In scriptural scripture, why do I have to go to church? I serve God my own way. Why do we go to church to begin with? I mean, I know Hebrews 10.25, but why do we go to church? Do I follow Rocky? Do I follow Venant? Do I follow Paul, uh, Apollos? Why do we go to church? Let me give you five reasons that I can try and squeeze into a minute. Firstly, the worship and reverence of God. You know, Psalm 95.6, come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Uh, fellowship and community, you want to be a part of it, like you mentioned, um, Hebrews 10, verse 24 to 25. We all, And there it says, and let us consider how we are to spur one another toward love and good deeds. So you, you are going to church for one another. You are serving one another like Christ washed the feet of his disciples. So it is that you're in a community where you can wash the feet of one another as well. Acts 2.42 says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. So thirdly, learning and then spiritual growth. You must be growing yourself, 
and you must be learning as you go. Second Timothy three sixteen to seventeen says, "All Scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work." And um, this is part of what has been the tradition of Christians since the beginning of the church in Acts 2. Acts 20 verse 7 says, On the first day of the week, which is the Lord's Day, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he, uh, because he intended to leave the next day, uh, kept on talking until midnight. You know, if you think uh, my sermons are long, <laughs> then uh, Paul's ones, he went until midnight on, on the first day. And then communion um, and the... Uh, the, you know, taking part in the Lord's Supper and baptism. You know, Matthew twenty six twenty six to 28, Jesus uh, instituted the Lord's Supper, and he said, Take and eat. This is my body. Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And in Acts 2, 38, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And then the last reason that I'd give in this brief over a minute, minute uh, is accountability and discipleship. We must be accountable to one another. Uh, James five sixteen says, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other, so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And Proverbs twenty seven seventeen, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. So there's a number of biblical reasons why we must go to church. Time to love and leave you. Bless your heart. Thank you for listening to this program. Trust that you have been blessed, challenged, and uh, thank you so much for choosing this radio station. Go out there, be a harvest field worker, share the gospel, share the good news, and uh, check on a daily basis whether these things are so that you've heard on Radio Pulpit, Acts 17.11. Rocky, just in closing, if somebody wants to write your email, your email address. Yeah, they're welcome to do that at pastor at benonibiblechurch.co.za. Till next time, keep well, God bless you. Shalom.